0: Shabbat shalom. All right. Nothing like a little bit of power, right? We're in part five of our series. I'm picking up where Elder Randy left off last week. I was in New Mexico. Uh, That was a great trip. I was not with you here, but uh, I got a lot of good feedback from what Elder Randy brought. He was picking up my series and running with it, and now I'm going to pick up where he left off. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the last four Beatitudes and try to get through them today, because Passover is right. We're entering the season of Passover, and, and I want to develop that for us as a community. That's a really big deal as a, uh, a community who believes in not only the Messiah— But the Torah is a way of life. And so we're going to be getting into that in the next couple of weeks. So we'll see if I can get through this. Beatitudes, mercy, purity, peacemakers, and the persecuted. Mm -hmm. These are the final four of the eight Beatitudes that Jesus gave to us. And if you're hungry like I am, and if you're, uh, you know, desiring meaning and purpose and peace and joy in your life, well, these are corridors to them. So today, hopefully, we'll try and finish. In Matthew chapter 5, 7 through 12, I want to pick these up. These are the last four. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's start with the fourth one. That's verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So let's look at the definition. Definition of merciful. It means pitiful and compassionate. It refers to the compassionate treatment, especially of those under one's power. So those who you have authority over, those who answer to you, whether you're a parent or in some other capacity, and you have people under your care, people that answer to you, it's how you treat them. To treat them with compassion is to treat them with mercy. It's also a sympathy and sorrow that's aroused by the misfortune and suffering of another as we listen to those who are under our care and we take into consideration when they're in trouble when they're being accountable for something they've done it's our job to try to in some ways empathize with them and to understand where they're coming from to to handle them in such a way that takes into consideration uh, the surrounding circumstances, factor factored in to why they did what they did, to not bring just justice and justice alone, but to mix that justice with mercy, to temper the judgment that is going to be given with mercy. That's what it means to be merciful. We all want to be treated mercifully when we fail, when we fall when we blow it. And so this call to be merciful is a call of the Lord to treat people with compassion even when they don't deserve it, to temper any judgment that we might give with mercy. Psalm 145, 8-9, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. I mean, can I hear an amen? Think about your life, right? Think about all of your moral failings. Has the Lord taken that into account and treated you in relationship to that? Or has he treated you in relationship to his kindness and his goodness? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. This is what we should emulate. We should be like our father in heaven, right? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Doesn't mean we let people off the hook. Doesn't mean that. It means we hold them accountable, but in a way that's kind and gentle, in a way that's compassionate and full of mercy. It says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. Lamentations chapter 3, 21 through 23. I recall this to mind, therefore I wait. The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions. Do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I'm 63. I've lived a long life. And I can attest to the truth of this passage. I've needed his grace every day. Every day. I'm an imperfect human being. If you don't know that, it's because you're a first-timer. Hang around. Hang around a little bit, right? I'm like you. I'm like you. I'm in need of grace every day. And I've discovered in that grace that his mercies are new every day. John Wimber used to say, you know, I get up in the morning. His mercy, his love is so overwhelming. And I start out, and I'm so full of praise, and I'm doing so good. And about noon, I kind of peak. By the afternoon, I'm up to no good, and evening's pretty rough. But as I confess my sin that day to the Lord, I go to bed weeping and wake up rejoicing because His mercies are new every morning. Luke 6, 37-38 Do not judge, and you will not be judged. I know a lot of people like to judge. A lot of judgers in this movement. Do not judge. The greatest motivation in our hearts for not judging others should be because we love ourselves. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned pardon and you will be pardoned forgive us this day our sins as we forgive the sins of those who trespass against us if you pardon you will be pardoned give and it will be given unto you they will pour it into your lap a good measure pressed down shaken together and running over for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. If you give mercy, you'll receive mercy. And to the degree that you give mercy, in terms of your generosity, it will be returned to you in the same measure. Over the years, I've become more and more merciful because I'm selfish. And I've realized I need mercy. So I'm gonna be a giver of mercy because I realize, oh Lord, I too need mercy. Matthew 5 8, it's our next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, where they shall see God. The definition of pure in heart means to have a heart that's clean and pure unsoiled in feelings and in mental faculties. It means to have, you know, the feeling of I'm right with God and I'm right with my fellow human being. My heart is clean. It doesn't have any defilement. And that in my mind, my my head's on straight and my mind is right. I'm not wrestling with any self-condemnation, any guilt, any anxiety over uh, sins of the past. That's what it means to be pure in heart, a healthy soul, free from the defilement of sin and guilt and condemnation and shame that only comes by the blood of Jesus. It's a powerful cleansing mechanism. That when we come before the Lord daily, we confess our sins and ask him for forgiveness. He not only forgives, he washes us, he cleanses us. And we have this freedom in our spirit, knowing that we are right with God, right? The feelings of a clean heart. That's a beautiful thing, powerful thing. Guilt and shame, they paralyze us, they, they poison us, they are toxins in our being. Who can free us? from these powerful emotions, these powerful ideologies of, of sin and shame. Only the blood of Messiah, only in his blood, can we experience that. Psalm 5110, David cried out after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, right? He was racked with guilt and shame. He cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's nothing as powerful as having a heart that's clean and pure towards the Lord and towards each other. There's a great freedom in that. And that comes through the Lord. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great the love of the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When our hearts are right with God, when they're cleansed with the blood of the Lamb, we are positioned and on course to meet Him when He returns. With heads lifted high, with a joy and praise on our lips, it is those that are born again and cleansed that will see the Lord, will see God and rejoice in Him. This has been our longing all along, all along Right? the heart of every born-again believer is to see God in His fullness. And we will wait, but that time will come for the pure in heart, for the born-again, for those cleansed by the Lamb to see the One who created all things, seen and unseen. And oh, what a day that's going to be. What an amazing day that's going to be. You know, there's been glimpses of God in the past. We read about those in the Torah, different times in which God's people saw God. And it's always within the context of blood sacrifice. It's always in the context of people being right with God through covenants that God gives them like a chance to see a glimpse of who he is. We see that with Moses and and, and the elders of Israel after they made the sacrifices and they came up on the mountain and they weren't supposed to go and they came and they saw God and, and there was like the sapphire below his feet and it says they ate and drank with God. And the reason that God allowed that was they just entered into a covenant and through the blood sacrifice were made right with him. And because of their faith in him through that blood atonement, it opened the door for them to commune and fellowship with God. So they saw God and they ate and drank with him. An amazing depiction of what's coming for all of us. Our next one is Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Where they shall be called the sons of God. The definition of this Greek word that we translate peacemakers means, or is in reference to those who make peace, establishing goodwill and friendship. They're those gentle, affable souls who are so inviting. They're the ones that reach out and build friendships. They show goodwill towards their fellow man. They love their neighbor as themselves. And the mechanism for the peacemaker in, in the context of this particular passage, the mechanism is in reference to covenant, that peace is made through covenant. Think about, about that for, for a moment. Um Peace is needed when there's a breakdown in a relationship and an ensuing battle or war as a result of that. We've all been there in, in, in the micro, in broken relationships, and you might be angry at someone and you want to make them accountable. That's code for I want to hurt them back, right? And so you have this kind of thing that is an ebb and flow of more and more things that break down the relationship as you reach out to hurt one another. Jesus is saying, no, forget the war. Run after peace. Be reconciled. Build unity. This is the work of Messiah. When we think of our world, you look at it, all the wars, just endless wars from the beginning of time, right? We come up to the Middle East, which seems to be the big crisis and all the tension that's over there almost all the time, and in the last administration, the breakthroughs that we hadn't seen, I don't think, in my lifetime in the Middle East. But our former administration brokered what was called the Abraham Accords. They were peace treaties between the Israelites, the Jewish people in Israel, and their Arab countrymen, neighboring countries. And they brokered these peace deals, and the world was astonished. And we saw peace between these groups on a level we had not seen since the creation of Israel in 1948. This is what it means to be a peacemaker, to seek for peace rather than war. Rather than ramping up war, we should be seeking Resolutions that bring peace. This is the heart of Messiah. The ultimate peace accord was the covenant that Jesus made with God on our behalf. He's the one that brought about peace and reconciliation. Romans 5, 6-11 through 11, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled We shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Ever since the beginning when we sinned against God, in that brokenness, in that alienation, We became enemies of God. And we've been at war with him ever since. And God, he's not angry. He's not upset. He's in love with us. The scriptures are clear. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God's a peacemaker. God doesn't want the war. In fact, in the midst of the war, while we were enemies with him, he sent his son and initiated the peace treaty on our behalf between himself and his son to end the war once and for all. And by the Spirit of the Lord, I say to you, the war is over. Through Jesus, we now have the opportunity to be peace at peace with God, be reconciled with God to be the friend of God, to gain the favor of God, to experience the blessings of God. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. John chapter 1, 11 and 12 says this, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, he gave the power to become sons of God to those who believed in his name. Imagine that, going from the enemy of God to the child of God. In Jesus, we are the children of God. In Jesus, we're reconciled to the Father. The war is over and the blessings have come. This is the good news of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Part of our work as the children of God are to help the lost around us find their peace with God to proclaim to those around us that are alienated from God that God loves them and the war is over. It's time to come home. And the path home is Jesus. That's part of our job, to be a peacemaker because we are the children of God. Final one, Matthew 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to say that When we talk about persecution, we really don't experience that in America like like we find it in so many countries around the world. People around the world are being truly persecuted, beaten in, in, in the streets just because they believe in Jesus, losing jobs just because they believe in Jesus, losing spouses and family just because they believe in Jesus. Some are actually thrown into prisons. Some are actually tortured. Some are actually crucified to mock the Lord. Imagine that. Dying daily around the world simply for believing in Jesus. Those are the truly persecuted. Those are the ones we should pray for daily. We should be shocked and appalled that that's still going on in our world. But in addition to that... There are softer um, levels of persecution, some of which touch our lives as well. So let's go on to look at those. Verse 11, Blessed are, are you when people insult you, when they mock you, when they make fun of you, right? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you Because of me. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. Understand they're lost. They're deceived. They may even think they're doing the will of God in insulting and and oppressing you. Rejoice. Rejoice. Don't be angry. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we handle oppression with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, we gain wealth for the age to come. We are rewarded for that restraint of righteous anger. We build treasures in heaven. Life is here and it's gone. It's so short anyway. And then we have eternal life in an age to come. A new heavens and a new earth. I want some spending money. I want some discretionary wealth for eternity. This is where we build it. Right here. In conclusion, let's make some application. Learn to receive mercy. Learn to receive mercy. You can't give what you do not have. So the Lord you know, spoke to my heart and said, make this the application in the area of mercy. So many people, by the lie of the enemy, can't receive mercy. They buy into the lie that they're too bad, they've gone too far, or they're not worthy of mercy. So instead of receiving it, they try to pay what justice demands. Well, I deserve this. This is my lot in life. You know? I deserve bad things to happen to me because I've done bad things. So they trudge along under the lie, not realizing that the Lord wants to give mercy and new beginnings to erase the wrongs done and to give a new birth and a new life in light of that. The Lord's saying, learn to humble yourselves and receive my mercy because the truth is, I love you. The truth is, you're worthy of my love. You're worth loving. If you weren't worth loving, he would not have sent his only son. You're worth so much to him, he sent his son. And because of that, he'll give you mercy every morning. So receive the mercy of the Lord, right? Humble yourself and receive it gratefully. Receive his forgiveness and forgive yourself. So many times we hold on to things we've done and we punish ourselves because we think we deserve to be punished. And God's saying, Look, I forgave you. Now you forgive yourself. Let it go. Put it behind you. My mercies are new every morning. Learn to forgive those who have hurt you. If you've received mercy, Extend mercy to others. Is there someone that you are holding unforgiveness from? Think about that for a moment. Are there people in your life that you are withholding forgiveness from? People that have hurt you. I know that for many of us, we'll hold unforgiveness for decades. For things done to us when we were even kids. Unwilling to forgive, hurting today like we hurt back then. The Lord is saying, if you've received mercy, you've received forgiveness. Forgive those who have trespassed against you. In light of the Father's mercy towards you, will you not forgive those who have injured you? And then finally, are you being judged, demeaned, and marginalized for your faith? This is no easy road, is it? I mean, think of keeping the Shabbat. I I don't know about you, but when I told my employer I worked blue-collar worker in retail for 20 years straight, when I told my employer I can't work on the Sabbath, you know what they said to me? They said, then you can't work here. I'm thinking, why can't I work here? You know, it's just one day a week. You can't work me more than five days anyway. Federal labor laws say you have to give me two days off. So why can't I have as one of those days, the Sabbath? They said, well, we just can't give you that. I did not bow to the pressure to keep my job. I went on, stayed faithful, and God made a way for me. Three different times in 20 years, they tried to fire me. And three different times, God made a way for me to keep my job. By the third time around, I finally got confidence. I was no longer worried when they came around and said, hey, you know, this is not working out anymore. We're going to have to let you go. And they cited all the problems of why they can't give employees, you know, the Sabbath off. And, and you know, they went through all this stuff. I would just, I wouldn't, it wouldn't even bother me after a while. I realized this. I told my, I told my last uh, store manager, I said, look, you do what you got to do. I've been around this mountain so many times. Just, you just do what you need to do. Let me work. Let me finish my shift or whatever, you know, because here's the deal. At the end of the day, if God wants me to keep my job, neither you or the legal department or the CEO is going to take that job from me anyway. And if you got saying, you know what, son, you don't get this job. There's nothing I can do to keep it. So I'm not worried anymore. I'll give you five days a week. Above average, you know, I don't lie. I don't steal. I work hard. I want to make you successful. I love the company. I'm grateful. You know, why would you not want me? You know, what is this all about? Think about it. You know, this is like just weird stuff. It's, you know, for me, it's spiritual warfare. I don't know what you want to call it. I love my job. I, I'm going to keep working. If you need to fire me, then go ahead and fire me. Yeah, worked 20 years, had a great run, made a lot of money, and I was grateful for it. But I learned this, God is faithful. And when you honor God, God will honor you. Same thing with a whole host of other things. We could go down the list. I'll pick out a couple of high points because we're out of time. Sometimes we are judged, demeaned, insulted, marginalized because we embrace biblical values like marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. People are losing jobs just because they believe this. People in the workplace, they say, yeah, I believe marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman. Boom, Fired. A lot of oppression going on surrounding that. Or for celebrating the fact that God created the heads and representatives of humanity as biologically male or female. Or that sexuality is designed to be experienced only in the realm of a biblical marriage. Yeah. There's a lot of pushback, a lot of censorship for believers who are concerned in speaking out, involving themselves in politics. There's a lot of pushback, oppression, and even persecution for not submitting and conforming to unjust government mandates. I mean, fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you're following in terms of God's ways, you're probably experiencing being marginalized and even demeaned and oppressed just because you're buying in to what the Father has laid out to us in terms of values and beliefs. Know this, what the world often says matters, God often says doesn't matter. And what the world often says doesn't matter, God often says does. Because of that, we're going to be counterculture. If you're experiencing nothing but favor from the world, it's because you're living in harmony with the world. And those who make themselves a friend of the world are adulterers. They've committed adultery with God. As we walk with God and walk in His ways, we will suffer persecution because the world hated Him. And because we follow him, the world will hate us. Who cares, though? We're building riches for heaven. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. They they overtax us. Can I give an amen? Inflation is a hidden tax that's killing us. The bank fails, and they're going to make you and me Bail out the filthy rich. Man, I'm telling you right now, no matter what they do, all of that's going to be transferred to us in the end. And we're going to carry that into eternity. And we're going to live forever and ever and ever. So we can endure the hardship. We can endure the the, the pushback from the world. In fact, we should be looking in the midst of that pushback for those souls who will listen to the good news and jump ship and come into the kingdom of heaven. We should be the peacemakers. Let's not just react, right? Let's love and help people embrace the truth, find the truth, embrace it, and free themselves of a world that is corrupt and sinking into hell itself every day. I'll leave you with Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. It sums it up by saying, This means that God's holy people must be patient. They must obey God's commands and they must keep their faith in Jesus. You can do this. Together, we can do this. And by the Spirit of God, we will do it for his glory. Shabbat shalom.